Good morning, Thomas Road Baptist Church. How are we doing this morning? Sweet. Well, um, I uh, think I got a table coming out here to put my. We don't put this down right here. Uh, <laughs> it's spring break, people. It's spring break. Um, well, I, uh, as Matt, Pastor Matt mentioned you guys earlier, I am a student ministry pastor leader here at Thomas Road Baptist Church, and I've loved my time being a student ministry leader here. I've been serving in student ministry for the last. Uh, the last uh, 23 years full-time uh, in different places across the U.S. And, and I'll tell you that something happened to me about nine years ago, 10 years ago or so that, uh, that uh, brought the reality of what I do in investing into the next generation uh, to a different level. And that was, I found out that my wife was pregnant. And now I don't just have to lead other people's children and students, but now I have to lead my own kids and students. And I'll be honest with you, I was terrified because I don't know the little kids the way that I know like the big kids. And so I'm freaking out a little bit about this interaction now that I'm gonna have with these small, this small child that's gonna be in my house. And, and I already love my daughter who was in my wife's womb, but I begin to go on a journey of investigation to figure out the best way to disciple my now small child that was about to be born into the world. And so I started reading all these books. I started picking the brains of all the spiritual leaders and pastors in my life that I saw how they parented their children and I respected them for the way that they had parented their children. And I was meeting in Orlando with a pastor friend of mine who is an incredible parent, an incredible leader, and someone that I wanted to pick their brain on, on how to kind of raise their kids. And I was asking him some questions. And I said, listen, man, like, like how do you teach your children, like your little kids, like spiritual truths? Like, how do you teach them things like mercy and grace and, and things that like, you know, that just to us, maybe as older adults and who kind of know definitions a little bit better and we're a little bit more comfortable with that conversation and we understand what those words mean. How do you teach your kids those things? And he said to me, well, you know, uh, Derek, it's funny you asked that. Let me tell you something that happened a couple weeks ago. He said, a couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was uh, uh, at work in my office at the church. I'm doing my sermon prep, preparing for Sunday morning, and my wife calls me. I answer the phone, and my wife says, I need you to come home right now. Now, for you single guys in the room, let me just help you out. If your wife ever calls you and says, I need you to come home right now, you have one option, and that is to go home right now. And so he says, okay, what happened? And he said, it is your daughter. He says, my daughter's four years old, and so I get in the car, and, and I drive home, and I have no idea what is going on. Well, later he learns that um, his wife had made some cookies uh, for some people that they were uh, something that she was going to take these cookies to. And, and, and she told the daughter who was four, do not touch these cookies. They were setting out. She'd put icing on them. They decorated them. Uh, she was taking them. Sorry, she said, do not touch these cookies. Uh, she went to go change some laundry out in the laundry room. And when she came back, the daughter was face first in the cookies, just going to town, pounding these cookies, right? And so she goes over and she's like, what are you doing? She gets angry at her daughter for disobeying, which, you know, as a parent, that happens with me too. And she gets angry with her daughter for disobeying. And she starts having this conversation with her daughter and she's down on her level as a good parent, you know, kind of getting down her level. And the daughter slaps her across the face. Now church, 
I never slapped my mom across the face because I know what would happen. I just slapped my mom and I woke up in heaven. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what would have happened. So she calls and says, you need to come home. So he comes home. He walks in the door. He, uh, 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 she's, uh, the wife's downstairs. She says, she's in a room upstairs. He said, I go upstairs. And I open up the door to her room. My daughter's sitting on the bed. She's bawling, crying. And she says this, Daddy, please have mercy on me. Now, I have a daughter <laughs> who has me wrapped around my finger, too. Daddy, please have mercy on me. And he said, I looked at her and I said, get off the bed and go downstairs. She says, what, daddy? Yeah, get off the bed and go downstairs. What do you mean, get off the bed and go? Yes, get off the bed and go downstairs. So she gets off the bed. She's crying. She walks down the stairs. They get to the door down at the bottom of the steps and the foyer. And he says, put your shoes on. She goes, where are we going, daddy? I just said, put your shoes on. She puts her shoes on. They walk outside. He says, get in the car. She says, where are we going, daddy? He says, I don't want you to ask another question. I don't want you to say another word. I just want you to get in the car. She gets in the car. She's in the back seat. He says, I'm driving down the road. She's crying in the back seat. I can tell that she's, she doesn't know what's about to happen in this moment. I'm driving down the road, and I pull into her favorite ice cream shop. It's one of those yogurt places, you know, like a sweet frog place like we have here in town, one of those places, right? Where you have to like mortgage your house in order to, you know, get one of them, right? Like one of those places. And so, so he says, I take her to this place and it's her favorite ice cream place and her eyes get really big and she goes, daddy, what are we doing here? And he says, get out of the car. She gets out and they walk in. She's four. They walk in and he walks over and you, I don't know if you know, like inside of these places, they usually have two cups. They have a cup for like a smaller cup and they have like a big daddy monster cup. And he gets the big daddy monster cup, hands it to his daughter and he says, get as much as you want. And he says, she's like, okay. She's over there. She's just dumping ice cream in there. It's piling over the top. He takes her over to the toppings bar. She's throwing toppings on there, toppings all over the top of the ice cream. Now the ice cream and the toppings are there. Goes over, sets it on the little scale so they can determine how much to charge you. Mortgages his house, buys it, goes over. They sit down. They start eating. She starts eating. Uh, she's sitting there with this big pile of ice cream. And he says, and, and, and she's looking at me. And she goes, Daddy, why are you doing this? I don't deserve ice cream. What I did to mommy was horrible. Why are you doing this? And he says, honey, you asked for mercy, but I gave you grace. You asked for mercy, but I gave you grace. See, mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Mercy's not getting a spanking when you deserve one. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. Grace is receiving, is grace is receiving ice cream when you deserve a spanking. Grace is way better than mercy is. In fact, mercy is not getting hell, though we deserve it because of the sin that we have in our life and because we're born with a sin nature. And the scripture clearly tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The scripture clearly tells us that there is no one righteous, not even one. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. And we're in a desperate place because of our sin. Mercy is that what Jesus has done for us is that, that we don't have to get hell, but even better is grace. That God doesn't give us what we deserve hell, but he gives us heaven in its place. That's grace. I, I, I love this story of this little girl because this girl was caught red-handed. She's caught in the act of doing something Horrific, And then she makes the situation all the more worse. But even though she was caught, she wasn't condemned. 
And if I was to give you a title for the message today, it would be Caught But Not Condemned. Caught But Not Condemned. In fact, um, in this series that we're in right now, we're, we're uh, uh, in this series called Conflict Revolution. And the idea behind this series is that, is that we see um, all throughout the, the ministry of Jesus, Jesus having these tension moments, these, these conflict moments with different people. Most of the time, Jesus didn't invite these moments. Most of the time, these moments just came to Jesus. But when Jesus was in these moments, um, Jesus didn't avoid the tension moment but he would lead through the tension moment and it would create this revolutionary idea about how we should interact with one another and about how we should live our lives in the faith journey that we have. And last week, Pastor Jonathan talked about one of those stories and this week I'm gonna talk to you about another one of those stories. Now I know that when we talk about tension moments and conflict, for most of us, that's not a fun thing. We don't like that. Tension makes us uncomfortable. For many of us, maybe we avoid tension. But here's what I've learned about tension. Here's what I've learned about conflict. Tension moments become teaching moments for us. In fact, I want you to think about the people in your life that you have the deepest, closest relationships to. Your spouse, your kids, your parents, your, your best friends. These are people that chances are you've had the greatest amount of tension and conflict with. But over time, you've worked through that tension and conflict and it has become teaching moments and build and build a deeper relationship with those people because of the tension that has existed in those relationships. And Jesus in this story uh, faces a conflict, faces a pretty intense situation. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to John chapter eight and we're gonna read in John chapter eight, starting in verse one. And while you're opening your Bibles up there, there is something that I need to bring up about this passage of scripture that's really important to understand. In fact, when you get to John chapter eight, verse one, if you back up just a little bit before that, you're probably going to see a disclaimer in your Bible. And that disclaimer is gonna say something to the effect of, this story, this passage, is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, I wanna address this just for two minutes just so that you can understand what's happening here. Now, I could literally spend our entire time today just addressing that issue. I'm not gonna take that time. There's a lot of scholarly uh, agreement and disagreement and, and conversation around this. You can go do the work yourself on that in your own time, but I will share a few things about it. It tells us that it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It's not in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, we're not found in many of the early manuscripts. Now, let me, let me explain. When the New Testament uh, uh, writers, or when the, when the translators translate from the Greek into the New Testament, they go back to the oldest manuscripts, copies, fragments that we have available in order to do this particular work. Now, in 1,495 of these manuscripts, 1,495, this story is included. In 267 of them, this story is not included. So for some of you, you might say, well, case closed. I mean, 1,495 of them include it, 267 of them don't. I'm just doing the numbers there. Seems like a lot over here and a little over here. However, the 267 are considered the earliest and the most important. So how do we handle this passage of scripture? Well, I love that the, the, the translators put in here this little disclaimer because it's in two places in your New Testament. It's right here and it's at the end of the book of Mark. I love that they wanna maintain the integrity of the scripture and they want you to know that there is no deception in what they are trying to say here because they wanna protect the integrity of God's word. 
But we're gonna teach this passage today as the early church fathers accepted this passage of scripture as inspired text. Whether everything happened exactly the way that it happened or whatever, what I do believe happened and what most scholars are in agreement on is that this story probably actually happened. In fact, there were a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of things that are not recorded in the Bible. These are not all of the miracles that he did, not all the conversations that he had. In fact, John tells us at the end of the book of John, uh, he tells us this, he says, um, it says this, it says, there are, there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written about, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So there were a lot of things that Jesus did that we don't know a lot about, uh, that we don't have the content on. And people say, well, I wish I had more. I wish I knew more. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but we have this much and we don't read it. Imagine if your Bible was this thick. You definitely wouldn't read it. So we have enough. So let's read John chapter eight. Let's read the passage. Here's what it says. Then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and then in verse two, uh, at dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the, people were, all the people were coming to him. He sat down and he began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman called in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, the woman was called in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked, they asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman at the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I mean, what a conflict in this situation. And I'll build a little tension for the conflict in this situation to help you kind of feel what's going on. This story actually takes place during the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths or Tents. And this is where uh, Jewish men and women would pilgrimage in the fall time, right after harvest, when their pockets were full of money, they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would set up tents all around the temple and around Jerusalem, and the population of Jerusalem would swell from all of the people coming in and pil pilgrimaging into Jerusalem. It would swell with all these people coming, and this would be a time of worship and a time of celebration. And they were, they were worshiping, commemorating the time when, when the, the, the people of God had been delivered out of Exodus, out of the hands of Pharaoh, and they were wandering in the wilderness, living in tents. And so at night, they would celebrate, they would party, and then during the day, they would go to the temple and they would worship. And this would be kind of like, in American terms, this would be like the 4th of July meets Easter, all right? So at this time, there are a lot of people that are around this particular scene. And Jesus is in the temple teaching, and the religious leaders are plotting. 
And Jesus is teaching. And imagine that it's Easter Sunday. People are everywhere. There's tons of people at church. Every seat is taken. People are lined in the lobby in chairs in overflow. People are in the Bruner Hall next door. Like People are everywhere because of all of the people that have come into this. And Jesus is in the temple teaching them. And that's where this scene begins to take place. And then halfway through this week-long celebration, Jesus is teaching, and, uh, and, and this horrific scene happens. I'm gonna go back and just kind of break this down for you. He says, then the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, I can just feel the condescendingness in their voice, right? Teacher, they said to him, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. These religious leaders, uh, uh, they've been caught in the act of committing adultery. Notice, notice what it says. The woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Wait a minute. This is confusing to me. What do you mean she's caught in the very act of committing adultery? I mean, adultery is something that's done in secret. It's done in private. And these men are religious leaders. Why are they not in the temple? Why are they running around town trying to catch people that have been caught in adultery? That, that doesn't make sense. And, 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 and where is the guy in this situation? Why is the woman being brought forward and being condemned for adultery when the same law in Deuteronomy 22 that says that, that those caught in adultery would be stoned demands that the man and the woman be stoned? So where is the man? Where is the guy? Listen, there's a lot of things that you can do uh, uh, by yourself and alone. Like you can go for a run. You can go for a bike ride, right? But adultery is not one of them. Where's the guy at? See, already there's something fishy going on in this scene. We know, and the scripture tells us here, that they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to set a trap for him. During this time, if you got caught in adultery, you got condemned. If you got caught, you got condemned. There was no, he keeps cheating on you, she keeps cheating on you. This was one and done before college basketball made it popular to say one and done, right? Go Flames, beat Wisconsin today, please, all right. Now, we don't know this woman's name, we just know her as the adulterous woman. All we know about this woman is her sin. And she's known, uh, uh, and, and, which I also think is interesting that in the culture that we live in today, for many people, they feel labeled by their sin. This becomes a part of their identity. This woman is now before Jesus. She's probably half naked, if not naked. She's there in her slippers. On Easter Sunday, the crowds are all around her. All the attention is turned to what's happening in this scene. She doesn't get to say goodbye to her children. She doesn't get to say goodbye to her family. She's just a pawn in the, the religious game that these guys are trying to play. Now, just to be clear, Adultery is an egregious sin. This woman is not off the hook. This woman has committed an egregious sin. And she's now standing before Jesus. And she's put herself in some ways in this situation. But this isn't about the woman in this situation for these religious leaders. This is about trapping Jesus. And the reason they wanted to trap Jesus is that they didn't like the fact that Jesus spent time with people who were far from God. They didn't like the fact that Jesus fellowshiped with sinners. They didn't like the fact that sinners were attracted to Jesus and wanted to spend time with him. They didn't like that. See, there was something about 
the character of Jesus that when sinners were around Jesus, when lost people were around Jesus, when the spiritually unresolved were around Jesus, they wanted to be around him. And had Jesus condemned them continuously, they would not have wanted to be around him. But Jesus showed them love. Jesus showed them care. But Jesus also never compromised. The Bible tells us that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. He never compromised, but he loved them. He shared with them. He poured into them. He invested into them. He spent time with them. And the religious leaders, they didn't like this. They didn't like Jesus' posture towards sinners. They were all about the rules. They didn't understand why people would, would do things and not be reverent. They had forgotten that lost people act lost. Lost people act lost. When you're in your sin nature and you don't have a new nature in Jesus, when you don't have God the Holy Spirit bringing conviction for sin in your life, then you don't realize that what you are doing is wrong. They were more about the rules and Jesus was more about the relationship. And sometimes the longer that we walk with Jesus, we start to forget about what Jesus has brought us out of and we start to apply on other people ways that we think they should behave and the ways that we think that they should live based on our relationship with Jesus that they don't have. The scripture tells us things like the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers that they cannot see the truth of the gospel. It says things like the message is foolishness to those that go on without believing. It's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I've, I've been at churches where I've served as a student pastor and there would be times when you know our church was reaching a lot of students that, that were spiritually unresolved, that were lost in our community and they started coming to our church, which I thought was incredible that they would come to our church and that they would feel welcomed and that they would feel loved. And I love that they would come to our church and be a part of our church because they could be anywhere they wanted to be. And they would come and they would engage and be a part of our ministry. But then inevitably, because they're lost, because they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they're not behaving like everybody else is behaving. They're acting out, they're acting up. They might say a cuss word or two in the hallway. And I've had multiple conversations with people through the years of ministry to say, hey, listen, these kids need to be reverent, and if they can't be reverent, we need to kick them out. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Do you think that Jesus would welcome these people? Lost people act lost. And let me tell you, when you love them, when you build a relationship with them, when you share God's word and his truth with them, it begins to change them and Jesus changes them. I was at a church in Illinois that I was a student pastor at and I remember one Sunday night sitting in the service, our services, we did four services on a Sunday and all of them were the same and on Sunday night at our 6 p.m. service, um, I come into the church service and on the back row of the service was a high school student sitting with his arms over the chairs like this, had his shirt off, his shirt was laying over his shoulder, sitting on the back row of the church. Now, I want you to imagine that scene if someone was sitting up here somewhere and they had their shirt off and they're sitting up here in the church. I want you to imagine the scene around them. In fact, if you were sitting around someone in here today and their shirt was off, you would probably be like, what's going on over there? This is church. It's supposed to be reverent. You can't come to church with your shirt off. What are you doing? 
The next week, same kid, back row, shirt off. The next week, same kid, back row, high, except for this time his shirt was on. He's walking out of the service. Our pastor's greeting people in the lobby as they walk out, and our pastor says, oh, what's up, man, what's your name? The kid introduces himself to the pastor. I'm out there in the hallway introducing myself to him, and my pastor makes the comment and says, oh, I see you decided to wear a shirt today. His mom, who was walking out with him, she starts to cry. She says, pastor, you're not gonna believe what happened. I've been trying to get my son to come to church ever since he was a little boy. But his daddy's not a believer and his daddy won't come to church. And he tells me every week, every week that I invite him, he tells me if daddy doesn't go, then I'm not gonna go. Daddy doesn't make me go, so I don't have to go. She said, so two weeks ago, He's mowing the yard out in the front of the house and I'm leaving to come to the 6 p.m. service on Sunday. And as I get in my car to back out, I'm about to get in the car to back out, I say to him, hey, do you wanna come to church with me today? And he says, oh, mom, I'm sweaty, I'm nasty, I'm dirty. You know, I, I haven't taken a shower, I can't come tonight. And she says back to him, but at our church, we say, I hear the pastor say all the time, come just as you are. Like we sing that song, right? Come just as you are, hear the spirit call. That's why I'm not a worship leader, just so you know, all right? We sing that song, but do we mean that song? And he's, he's singing this song, or uh, he's saying this, and, and he says, okay, he says, he says, okay, fine. And kind of being a punk about it, he walks over, grabs his shirt off of the fence, throws it over his shoulder, gets in the car, and she goes, you're gonna put your shirt on? He goes, no, you said to come as you are. The next week, same thing, he's mowing the yard, she comes out, you wanna come to church with me? He said, yeah, walks over, grabs his shirt, throws it over his shoulder, gets in the car, comes to shirt. The next week, that day, she says to him, do you wanna come to church? And he said, yes, and he's running into the house and he says, where are you going? And he says, I'm gonna go put a shirt on. He gets in the car with the shirt on and she goes, why are you wearing a shirt? She's confused. He says, those people welcomed me, they loved me and they showed me respect, I'm gonna do the same thing. And he put his shirt on. See, their love and the relationship that they were building with him and the greeters that were high-fiving him when he walked in the door and people not looking at him in a condescending way and in a condemning way led to this kid now having a reverence and respect and this woman who's been trying to get her son to go to church for like 16 years of her life finally now has him at church three weeks in a row. And I promise you, he's on the way. He's on the way to his life being changed. In the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They asked to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. These religious leaders have this twisted plan and it is absolutely brilliant because here's the situation of this, this deal. They've called Jesus in front of an entire crowd. This is kind of a scene where Jesus is in the pressure cooker of conflict in this moment and Jesus is interacting in this scene and, and, and here's the dilemma that Jesus is under. If Jesus says, tells them to not stone the woman, then now Jesus is going against the Mosaic law and all of the people who are listening to Jesus who revered the Mosaic law and the Torah at a high level, they are going to react to Jesus's dismissal of what the commandment has told them to do. However, if Jesus tells them to stone the woman, uh, uh, to stone the woman, 
then Jesus would, be, uh, Jesus would be going against the Roman government because the Roman government was the only one who could initiate uh, a capital punishment for religious sins or religious discretions or things that would happen. He didn't have the authority to do that. And they knew that because of all of the people that were in town, that security was heightened and there were Roman soldiers around and had they heard this, he would be arrested. And if Jesus does nothing, then it would seem like Jesus was condoning this woman's sin and that would be even worse. And so this trap is beautiful, it's perfect. They think that they've got Jesus trapped, but trapping Jesus is like trapping a lion with silly string. You can't do it. You can't do it. And I want you to notice what Jesus does in the pressure cooker at this moment. It says he stooped down, he starts writing his finger on the ground. He just ignores them. And you can tell they're annoyed by the fact that Jesus ignores them because the scripture says that they keep asking him questions. They keep questioning him. Right now, when he stoops down and he writes with his finger on the ground, about people debate, and I've heard pastors make comments about what they believe that he was doing when he bent down on the ground, like he's writing maybe, you know, the, the names of the, the Pharisees that are in front of him and like their sins, you know, like Mike, adultery, you know, um, you know Sam, uh, you know, uh, liar, you know, um, uh, Miguel, you know, um, Cow Dallas Cowboys fan, whatever, like, he might, like, we don't... I don't know, I'm not even gonna speculate what he was writing on the ground, but let me tell you something that I think is significant about what happens in the scene. Jesus doesn't just do it once, he does it twice in the scene. He stoops down and he kneels before the woman. A Jewish man in this culture in the first century would never have done that. Jesus is lowering himself. He's, he's consistently demonstrating humility. He's consistently demonstrating for the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He's consistently demonstrating that as he bends down in humility, which later he would lower himself to voluntarily give up his life, to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sin and for all sin. And the scripture goes on to say, when they persisted in questioning him, they keep questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus drops a bomb on them. He drops a bomb on them, one that dismantles their plan. These guys are trying to trap Jesus, and now Jesus has them trapped. In fact, you can write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. They brought this woman in, exposed in her sin, and Jesus turns around and exposes them of their own sin. Jesus doesn't deny the sin of the woman, but he brings the accusers of this woman into the circle of condemnation. He brings them into the circle of condemnation. This is conflict revolution. Jesus is saying, listen, you need to examine your own self and your own sin before you start pointing fingers and addressing other people and their sin. You need to examine yourself. This is the proverbial, before you take the speck of sawdust out of someone else's eye, you need to take the plank out of your own eye. And Jesus brings them into the circle of condemnation. See, sometimes what happens is we condemn other people because we see our sin as smaller than we should see it. We see our sin as smaller than other people's sin. And that's a problem. In fact, you should hate your own sin more than you hate someone else's sin. In the church, we have all types of sayings that I hear people say all the time. Things like, God is good, and the church would say, all the time, and all the time, God is good. And I hear people say things like, don't hate the sinner, hate the sin. I like to say it like this, don't hate the sinner, 
but hate my own sin. I should hate my own sin more than I hate anybody else's sin. Jesus turns it around. This, and then when we continue in the story, it says this, when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Uh, only he was left with the woman at the center. If I close my eyes, I can imagine the sounds of the rocks just dropping on the temple floor as these men slithered away. And then when Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, are there, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus gives her dignity. He doesn't call her adulterer. He calls her woman. And he says, neither do I condemn you. She was caught, but she wasn't condemned. She was caught, but she wasn't condemned. The one who had the right to condemn was Jesus. He was the sinless one, but he chose not to condemn her. Maybe for some of you, you came here today and your view of God has been this view that he is this condemning God, that Jesus would condemn you and that he's waiting for you to mess up so that he can pounce on you. And I'm here to tell you, he extends grace. He extends forgiveness. He's not here to condemn you. He's offering you heaven in place of hell and the sin that you have in your life that is leading you there. He is offering you the free gift of salvation through his son, Jesus. I love John 3, 16, which is the, you know, the most quoted verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3, 17 says this, for the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So this makes us reflect that this is the heart of Jesus and this is how he brings about this then does Jesus, if he's not condemning this woman, does he condone this woman's sin? Well, of course he doesn't, because right after this, he says, go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus doesn't condone her, but he, also, he does not condemn her, but he also doesn't condone her sin either. He doesn't condone her sin either. So what do we do with this, church? Well, there's two things that I'll say that we can do with this, and we'll wrap it up. The first is this. Judge yourself before judging others. You need to judge yourself before you judge others. In other words, don't forget to look at your sin first. Take sin in your own personal life seriously. Jesus does not condone the self-righteousness of the religious any more than he condones the adultery or the sin of this woman who's been brought before him. And we have to deal sometimes with the self-righteousness that we have in our own life, especially the longer that we've been walking with the Lord. The, the, the second thing and the second kind of point of application I'll give you is this, drop the rocks. Drop the rocks, put the rocks down. Put the rocks down. Some of you have rocks with someone's name on it. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend, or maybe it's a leader, maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's something at your church, right? May we be a church that is known as a rock dropping church and not a rock throwing church. And if you're here and you've never made that decision to surrender your life to Jesus, the one who's made a way for you to be saved through his death, burial, and resurrection for the remission of your sins, then make that day be today. The band's gonna come out. We are going to close out our service today. I, I just feel like it's appropriate with the song that we sang at the end there, what he's done, talking about his forgiveness, talking about his grace. And I would encourage you, church, just to respond as you would, the Lord would have you respond in your own life as you deal with your own personal sin or maybe it's making a decision to follow him. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. We just ask God that you would be with each of us today. 
that you would use your word to penetrate deep into our hearts, that you would challenge us and change us by the power of your word and by the conviction of your Holy Spirit. I pray for those that are in this room today that, that, that may not have a relationship with you or they've never surrendered their life to you. I pray that today, Lord, maybe to them, you have revealed to them that you're not this condemning God, but that you're this loving God who wants to save them and have a relationship with him, that you care more about the relationship than you do about the rules. And I ask God right now in the name of Jesus, you would just draw those people to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. We have pastors down in the front if you would like to come for prayer or to talk to someone about a decision to follow Jesus. Respond as God would have you respond. The scripture says that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. That's your testimony today. Stand to your feet and let's sing this out. If you need to find Jesus today, we invite you to come down, talk to one of our counselors. What he's done, what he's done, all the glory My sins are forgiven, my future is heaven, I praise God for what he's done. Sing it out. For what he's done, what he's done, all the glory and the honor to the Son, my sins are forgiven. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We're so glad you joined us. If you prayed to receive Christ today, we'd love to hear from you. We want to help you as you begin this new journey of faith in Jesus Christ. Send an email to the address on the screen, pastor at trbc.org. Likewise, if you've never accepted God's free gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, but you'd like to know more, we're here to help you. Just reach out to us and we'd love to tell you more. Our mission at Thomas Road is to change our world by developing Christ followers who love God and love people. If you'd like to help us fulfill that mission by giving to our ministry, go to the link on your screen and make your contribution today. Help us help others with the life-changing truth of God's love.